You can be the worst campaign manager in the world and win an election. Or you can be the best campaign manager in the world and lose an election. Sometimes there's a brilliant campaign that really moves voters, but most of the time, the effects of these campaigns are small. And if you're a campaign manager and you do something different and you lose, you get blamed for it. If you're not doing anything different, no one can blame you for the outcome. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Hal Malchow. Hal was a longtime Democratic political consultant with a firm that specialized in direct mail and internet advertising. He retired from that to write both fiction and nonfiction. Hal returns to this podcast today to discuss his most recent book, which is called Reinventing Political Advertising. Hal says it's time to change the nature of our ads and how we target them. If you're interested in moving people to our side, you should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Hal Malchow. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hal, would you mind introducing yourself again and giving me a quick biography so that we can talk about your latest book? Okay. I have been a political consultant for 30 years. I was a leader in the movement to change the way we targeted voters, using individual voter data and good voter lists to create measurements that gave us the ability to um, target much more effectively in campaigns. In 2003, I wrote a book called The New Political Targeting. And I thought that, well, if the right 50 people read it, then this will move things forward. I actually sold 5,000 of these books. And I think it was, I think it was helpful in leading up to the kind of elegant targeting that the Obama campaign used in 2008. And your work as a political consultant mainly was in the direct mail space where you built a big firm or how would you characterize it? Yeah, no, we, I had the largest voter contact firm in America, and we did mail. Uh, that was our primary source of, of revenue. But we also did internet. We did websites and internet advertising, and, and we did a lot of micro-targeting. Since you decided to dismantle that firm and return to private life a little bit, you seem like you're no less productive putting out books in both fiction and nonfiction over the years. Tell me a little bit about your work since the end of MSHC. This book, the Reinventing Political Advertising, is my sixth book. My first book was The New Political Targeting. And then my eight-year-old son came to me and said, Papa, 
we'd been playing these storytelling games. And he says, I don't want to do another storytelling game. I want to write a book. I just read him The Hobbit. And so we spent two years working on the book. I spent six years trying to get it published, which I finally did. And that led to a sequel. And then I also wrote two political thrillers, the last of which, 42 million to one, was finalist for for four major awards. And we talked about that on this show a couple of years ago. And then you also were exhorting people to put more emphasis on party advertising, on trying to move people from one party to the other or from unaffiliated to registered Democrats. Right. Yes. In 2000, the year 2000, that election year, there's a Republican firm that measures ticket splitting every two years. In their measurements in the year 2000, 36% of the voters split their tickets, voted for at least one Democrat and a Republican. In 2020, that number was was 11%. So basically what you've got is you've got 90% of the voters are choosing parties and 10% of the voters are choosing candidates. And if that's the case, why are we spending 100% of our money on candidate advertising when the voters are choosing parties? There's a second element to this. If if you are involved in a Senate race and you do advertising for a Senate candidate, presumably what happens is you influence voter choice in that particular race. If you do advertising about parties, and I think there are real opportunities there, you're influencing choices up and down the ballot. And really, the in states where there's party registration, the length of someone's party registration is about 20 years. So if you're moving up and down the ballot and that benefit extends for 20 years, what is the value of that compared to uh, influencing choice on one candidate? Now, this requires people in politics to take a long-term view, which is not something that happens very often. But there are people who can see the benefit here. It's a complicated question. You know, do you move people who are really already Democrats and are voting that way anyway? There's a lot of measurement to sort out. But if you can make it succeed, the value is immensely larger than the value of advertising for one candidate. And really, if the voters are choosing parties, well, you're speaking to them on their own terms. I should mention one other thing. A lot of people are skeptical about how many people would change parties because we live in a hyper-partisan environment and these loyalties run very strong. The Gallup polling organization does a monthly poll of party affiliation. And the average change in party affiliation is three and a half percentage points a month. In January of 2021, when we had the uh, takeover of the Capitol and the insurrection, it moved 13 and a half points toward the Democrats. And this speaks to other issues about within political advertising, because, you know, no one's running ads to tell people which party to support. If it's moving 13 points or three and a half points average, which is much larger than the measurements that we see from political advertising, if it's moving that much, it says that the news events are far more powerful than any advertising we can offer. 
and that what we need to do is shift our political advertising away from these dark pictures of our opponent and accusations and all of this toward supplementing the news with information that is relevant to voters, but that they're not picking up in the news. When I talk to various political consultants and other operatives, I often hear critics of television advertising used in campaigns. A lot of that comes from a, we think that money should be spent more on digital. And sometimes it seems self-serving because that's what they're advocating for. You are also a critic of advertising, but I think coming from a quite a different angle, but much more on how money should be spent and what is effective. Tell me a little bit about the sort of the genesis of this book, Reinventing Political Advertising, and why you decided to write it and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, one reason I decided to write it was because I have a great frustration in that practitioners of political advertising are not paying attention to the research. And I had the idea, interestingly enough, that the big issue was that television was overrated and was certainly enough of the impact that it would get 80, 90 percent of the dollars that that are spent. As often happens, when you enter a project that involves a lot of research, your views shift. And I have to say, Having looked at this and looked at all the ways that television ads have been measured, I think it changed my mind about this. I think television is important. It's probably a little more powerful than the other mediums. But the whole issue of what medium you use is is complicated and varies for each voters. And, and, and that what we need to do is we need to, to redo our targeting so that it includes a low information voters, which is the biggest piece of targeting. B, it includes media consumption. I know Catalyst has excellent models that predict how much time people are spending in front of a TV set, how much time on the internet. They obviously don't have a model about how often, how much time people spend reading, but they have a reading model that has been predictive in showing larger impacts to uh, mail advertising. In my book, I offer an agenda for targeting where we use the information, modeled information level of each voter. We use what mediums they're looking at. We use the partisanship where where we look at look for voters in the middle, not not at either end of the spectrum. We put these three things together to create a persuasion score for each medium. You know, if I'm a campaign manager, I'm thinking, oh. Do I need to buy TV? Do I need to buy mail? Do I need to buy digital? Well, there's an answer for that question with each voter. We need to provide campaigns with that information. Why is it, do you think, that there is resistance to this message? And what is your best idea about changing the way we're spending money if a large part of it is getting wasted? Well, I went through this on the issue of how we were doing our voter targeting in the 90s. We were doing precinct targeting. If a precinct had a high turnout, we didn't do any turnout activities. If it had low turnout, 
We do a lot of turnout activities. But within both of those universes, within both of those precincts are voters who vote all the time or who never vote. And and moving the analysis to the individual voter level, particularly as the voter list improved and provided more information, seemed to me it was like a 30-second conversation. But it really took about 12 years to get people to move and and to adopt a more sophisticated, nuanced approach to deciding which voters they wanted to contact. I think part of the problem is this. You know, you can be the worst campaign manager in the world and win an election, or you can be the best campaign manager in the world and lose an election. Sometimes there's a brilliant campaign that really moves voters, but most of the time, the effects of these campaigns are small. And if you're a campaign manager, and you do something different and you lose, you get blamed for it. If you're not doing anything different, no one can blame you for the outcome. I, I think this is part of the resistance. I once got invited to Harvard to the Kennedy School to give a lecture about innovation and resistance. And I walked through kind of all the things that cause an organization to be resistant. The biggest one is the lack of accountability for results and a lack of measurement. And there is very little measurement taking place, much much more than there used to be, but there's still, compared to business organizations, some of which spend 20% of their revenues on R&D, we don't even spend 1%. I think the lack of measurement is another reason why we don't have a lot of accountability and don't see a lot of innovation. And one of the key parts of your recommendation is based on this finding that low information voters are much more persuadable than high information voters, if I understand this, and dramatically so. And can you talk about about that a little bit? Because it seems like it's sort of hiding in the data to some extent. If you don't look for it, you don't find it. If you aggregate both of them together, you see very little movement. I think there was an example in your book where it seemed like something that uh, a, a program, advertising program was moving people a lot in the low information space and maybe even going the opposite direction in the high information space. Here's my explanation for this. I think If you want to change someone's mind about something, you have to give them new information. If you tell them something they already know, how is that going to change their mind? What happens with the low information voters is, compared to the high information voters, any information we provide in advertising is much more likely to be new information among the low information voters. And among the high information voters, it's unlikely to be influential because they already know it. I was profoundly surprised at the extent of the difference between how low information voters move and how high information voters move in response to advertising. And this gets back to a a certain important point. In political campaigns, we've always targeted the undecided voter, but we're really not asking the question in the right way because we're using this information to plan our advertising. Advertising is not liked. It's not believed. It's 30 seconds, which means it's not a lot of information. It's a weak weapon for these campaigns, but it's the only one we have or the largest one we have. 
Do you want me to go through some of the experiments? Why don't you pick a couple that really illustrate that? It's very eye-opening. It was eye-opening to me. Let me start with probably the finest piece of academic research addressing the question of how much voters move in response to television advertising. There are three academics who put this study together. They measured TV ads aired by campaigns in 4,500 races over a 10-year period and correlated that with the outcome of the election. What they found was really interesting. In the presidential race, if you had a 100 ad advantage over your opponent, it was worth two hundredths of a percentage point. You, As you move down the ballot, it increased at each step. Congressional races, it was 0.8 uh, per, hundredths of a percentage point. If you were running for state treasurer, it was a third of a percentage point, 16 times the uh, impact of the presidential race. And why is that? Because as you move down the ballot, people have less and less information about these candidates. The big study took place in New Mexico in 2010. The NEA sent three mailings to uh, their members, and they, they had a treatment group that got the mailings and a control group that didn't. Just by accident, the polling firm that was doing the surveys of treatment and control to measure whether these mailings had made any difference, they called the um, Analyst Institute Executive Director, Todd Rogers, one of the most brilliant people I know. He's teaching at Harvard now. They said, you've paid for one more question than you're using. And he says, oh, and they say, what, well, what question do you want to ask? And Todd answered with a suggestion or a question that stunned everyone around him. No one could understand why he was doing it. And he said, ask them whether or not they know which party is controlling Congress. These were voters who voted in 2006 and 2008. They were regular voters. A third of them could not tell you which party controlled Congress. The overall, the mailings moved the needle three percentage points toward the Democratic candidate. But the two-thirds of the voters who knew which party controlled Congress, the movement was six-tenths of a percentage point. Among those who did not know, the movement was 19 points, 31 times the impact compared to voters who knew which party controlled Congress. There is a large body of evidence that says the less the voter knows, the more influenced they will be by advertising. Not whether they're undecided or not, although that can be part of the equation, but but what is their response to advertising? That's what we're doing. That's our method of influencing voter choice. There's another experiment where they actually used six questions about political knowledge to rate voters on a one to 100 scale, um, uh, measuring how much they knew about politics. Among voters who uh, who were at 80 or above, the uh, the impact, this is in, was in a presidential race. It was also in a race where they showed people the advertising and they were paid to look at it, which always inflates the uh, uh, the effect sizes. But, but anyway, among the voters who had a score of 80 or above, uh, the impact was seven-tenths of a percentage point. Among those below the 80 score, the impact was 4.7 points, which is, in a presidential contest, is huge. 
So it had seven times the effect. You know, in New Mexico, it was 31 times. This time it was seven times. Where this ends up as an average, I don't know. But it's an element of our targeting that we have to explore and understand. What is the correlation between vote propensity and uh, an information level? There's bound to be some, but until you measure these things and study it, you can't completely master the targeting. Do you think that this finding that's been around quite a while now, that low information voters are more susceptible to be having their minds changed, is widely understood in the political consulting world on our side? I don't think it's understood at all. So, uh, uh, let me give you a great example, okay? If you believe that the low information voter is your target, and that's where you can gain the most votes, if you believe that, you probably should be advertising on world wrestling or uh, maybe hee-haw reruns or the kinds of shows that reach people with the lowest knowledge. Instead, among Democrats and Republicans, over the last 20 years, almost 60% of the advertising has been placed on news programming. The worst possible placement. If you took those placements and assign them randomly, I'm sure you would at least double your effect. So if you're asking, do they know? They probably spent four or five billion dollars advertising on news programming, which is exactly the wrong target. It's one thing to have an experiment that indicates in a certain situation that you can have a lot of people moved by something. It's a lot different to actually have the right measurements, write the right kind of ad, target it in the right kind of way, and actually make this happen in the real world under real circumstances. No, it is hard. There's a lot of steps here. There's You've got to create an information model. You have to create a targeting score. You have to take that targeting score and multiply it by the uh, turnout score so you're not wasting a lot of money on people who are not showing up. But you can get a good, clean measurement of value. And most importantly, once you have a targeting score for on t the basis of television, you have to go to Nielsen or some other source of programming where they measure who's watching and score the TV programming, the possible TV placements by the number or percentage of high targets for television that they are. If we did all of that, we would win a lot more races. I saw an email this morning out of Analyst Institute, which the header was about your book. Clearly, you are still influential in this community of analysts that pay attention to these things. And a lot of them are in the right places to influence budgets and programs. What is stopping us as you're spreading this information and other people who are influential are agreeing with you or blurbing your book like Aaron Strauss or Mike Podhorzer? What's stopping this from making real change? First, first is the culture of political campaigns, which is innovation averse. Second, it's that many of these ideas that I've put in this book are relatively new or at least unfamiliar in the audience that makes these decisions. Third, 
it's a big workout to go through all of these steps to do all the things I suggest. It could happen. Hopefully, it'll happen. I have ideas about how to do this, and I've been talking with the Analyst Institute about them. I'm mailing a copy of my book to the 50 largest donors to Democratic campaigns with a letter that begins with the questions. You are a major donor to Democratic campaigns. Do you ever wonder about whether that money is making a difference? And then describe my book. I mean, you know, these are business people, by and large, who are used to measuring things, who want to know what their return on investment is and things like that. Uh, You know, return on investment for us is the number of votes we move. I would dare to say that we don't even know that for 1% of what we do. I was lucky enough to get one of your books in the mail and read it in time to interview you. Have donors or do you also send it to media consultants? Have, yes. have any of them received it and read it and gotten back to you and said, this is persuasive. I'm going to start making change. I did this book with Barnes & Noble and not with Amazon. The reason being that I didn't want this book to be easily found by Republicans because I think there are ideas and concepts here that will help any party who uses them to gain an advantage. So I'm hopeful that this can be an advantage for Democrats. So I put it on Barnes and Noble, which I have to say has been a nightmare getting the books delivered. I've put out about 60 books. I, in the end, I will put out about 200, but I've been waiting now for three weeks for my 200 books. Got it. Both of us have run firms in this space over the years. We know how when you have an enterprise and it has its own processes and its own people and its way of doing things, that it is the most convenient and easy thing to do again the next cycle what you did the last cycle to use the same tech, to use the same processes, to use the same modes of thought, to communicate to clients in the same way. You must have had a conversation with a media consultant and said, hey, I think you ought to be going after the low information voter. You should be targeting this according to what a person's media usage is. Have you had that conversation and what do you hear? I've had two, three conversations along those lines. Um, and, you know, there's not much realization in that community that they're doing anything wrong. The three conversations were mostly, that's really surprising, or that, yes, we haven't been doing uh, news programming as much as we used to. My response was, you shouldn't be doing it at all. The comparisons are dramatic. You know, you could do a little local news. That audience is a little different, certainly from Meet the Press or from MSNBC or, or whatever. The but but yeah, no, there's not a lot of of realization that what they're doing is not the right approach. What do you think is the strongest argument that they might make that they are already doing the right thing and that this is not as significant a change as you because I represent it to me. Yeah. Listen, when when you have an experiment that says voters who don't know which party controls Congress are 31 times more likely to move in response to advertising, and all of the advertising is is directed toward people who do know, who are watching the news, 
who are well-informed about politics. I don't know what you say, but that is based on evidence and research that you could say to refute what I'm saying. You handle this a bit in the book, but like that low information voters aren't going to vote. So what's the point of reaching them? Well, no, no, no. So in my targeting, in my targeting proposal, we we build an equation that predicts likelihood of movement in response to advertising. All right. And the elements of that are the modeled information level of the voter, that where they sit on the partisan scale, how close they are to the middle. And three, what is their media of choice? Are they spending 10 hours a day on the internet? Are they watching six hours a day on television? Are they reader friendly? And putting all those things together to get a persuasion score that says, if we serve these people advertising, how likely are they to move? And, and making that likelihood particular to each medium. You know, these campaign managers, So we have these three mediums now. You can advertise on the Internet. You can advertise on TV. You can advertise in the mail. And and they're sort of faced with the choice of, oh, you know, what do I do? Which one do I choose? And how much? If you had an individual voter score based on the medium, the whole thing becomes a lot more simpler. They have people who will move in response to Internet advertising, and they get Internet advertising, and the people who move in response to TV, get TV advertising, and the same with mail. It helps not only in providing a measurement that predicts movement, which is what we're trying to predict, it also provides a much easier decision-making process for a campaign. We simplify it for them. You've had a, a pretty long career in this political consulting space. Can you tell me about some other times when you were bucking the common practices, what are some uh, stories of trying to make that kind of innovation along the way beyond what you mentioned with the new targeting book? Yeah, we were probably the first mainstream firm. And by mainstream firm, I mean firms that were doing more than one medium that had an internet department. It's in the book, but we went to this focus group and with the Sierra Club in, in uh, Milwaukee, and and we had a bunch of, of under 30 voters looking at our mail, and uh, they would hold the pieces of mail up by the corner and look at them as if they were some strange Egyptian relic. The poster who was conducting the focus group, he asked one of, one of the participants, he said, would this piece of mail influence your your choice of candidates? And he said, well, if I went to the my mailbox and if I picked up the mail and read it and if I thought about it, then maybe yes. <laughs> and, you know, there's there is no great result that starts with three ifs. I went back to uh, our office in Washington, D.C. I called a meeting of our senior staff. I reported on the focus group and I said, hey. We need to open an internet department. And we did. And it worked. We were one of the largest internet advertisers for a while. We did fundraising in the John Kerry campaign, which was probably the first time someone had used internet heavily to raise money. We did a whole lot of things wrong. You, you, you know, the Obama campaign, they mastered 
the, the idea that you just sign someone up and get their email and then you go after the money. We asked for $50 right away, but we raised $3 million on a spend of $1 million and everyone thought that was just the most fantastic result anyone would ever see. Obama raised $700 million the next election year. It was a start and, you know, we innovated there and it gradually became a substantial part of our business. And other people followed. It seems to me like it's a business opportunity for a new media firm to organize itself around these propositions that you're putting forward if they work better, if you can get more impact for fewer dollars uh, by creating ads this way. Why why wouldn't it make sense for someone to say, all right, I got a, a media firm. These are the principles which I operate under. I'm going to compete with the existing firms out there that are making this mistake. And I'm going to be able to show through data that you're way better off doing it this way. Why is, is that happening or why not? No, there hasn't been time for that to happen. The book is just getting out. And I probably have 75 books to send to media consultants that haven't even arrived at my household. We are at the very beginning. Would it be a, uh, a business advantage to pitch this? Well, it would be if we get an information model and if we can build the models that I suggest and if, particularly, if we could get a persuasion score for television and match it with the programming that's available to buy spots on, yes, it would be. But those are a lot of steps. Right now, there's insufficient awareness of this to make it an, an attractive pitch to uh, bring business to a firm, particularly a television firm. I'm, I'm trying to think of like ways to make this happen. It seems like, what about creating another institution that served as a consultant to all these consultancies about targeting to some degree that that exists already. What if there was something that was built around this idea that offered to media consultants and others, voter contact specialists to look at how they're targeting to revisit it based on these ideas and to help them test whether or not the kinds of ads that you propose, which are also much more plain, much more aimed at credibility and potentially more effective in persuasion, as well as the targeting towards the types of people that you've mentioned? It is an idea. I can't do this by myself. My role here is to write a book, which in 2003, when I put out the new political targeting, this started to change things. You know, I've been all around D.C. and all the pollsters' offices and here and there with a 20-minute PowerPoint, and everyone would nod their head and go, wow, this is all really smart. But nobody would take it to their clients and say, here's what we should be doing. So I put out this book. Hopefully, the book will catch on. Hopefully, a lot of people will read it. And to the extent they do, then you build an audience for this. But yeah, it's a long process. I firmly believe if we could build the models that I propose, if we could match them with a good television programming database, if we could do that and implement that in the 2024 election, I believe it would be worth between three and five points in every election in which it was implemented. So it seems like if we, if you could just get 
the Biden campaign on which the future of our democracy depends to some extent uh, to do something that might gain, even if you're doubling the impact that might gain them two points, even that might be the difference, right? Right. It, it, it might be, I mean, you know, Biden has a set of problems, some of which are almost insolvable. But if the advertising is pointed at people who will move in response to it or are more likely to move in response to it, this is a big deal. I've sent, I think, three of the books, or, or I haven't sent, but they're ready to send to people in the White House that I know. Hopefully someone will pick it up and read it and think this can help us. Once I get all these books out, I'll work to get an audience there and in other places and come back to D.C. and make some presentations. I mean, the data case is really strong here. You either got to say, well, the data can't be true, or you've got to accept that there is a great advantage in targeting in the way that I'm suggesting. How does this intersect with the Trump audience and the notion that he seems to be most successful among low information voters. Does this mean that that some of them are more vulnerable to persuasion? You know, I hadn't even thought about Trump and his his voters, but that makes a lot of sense. If you look at the profiles of his voters, they, they are less educated. Education is a big predictor in how much how much people know about politics. So I think you're right in, in that he has appealed to low information voters. I mean, I don't know that he's done it in his television targeting, but Trump has not been uh, a big funder of television ads compared to other candidates. And it doesn't seem to have hurt him at all. And see, he seems to have a knack of reaching a wide part of the electorate with the way he communicates. If we accept the finding that low information voters are more susceptible to persuasion, that can come from him making news. And that may explain a lot of how he's been successful. Right. No, it, it, it is news. I mean, he has a presence on social media that is just astounding. And I didn't write about social media because I felt like it's a hard medium to control and it's very siloed and there's not any data about it. It's hard to measure. I, I think the profile of his supporters indicates that a lot of them are low information voters. And therefore maybe maybe movable in a way we hadn't thought about? Well, that's what you know, that gets to another question. You know, there was recently this group of moderate Republicans that tested four or five television ads with Trump supporters. They've tested four ads, three of them moved people toward Trump. There were ads about the indictments and the criminal activities and it just made his supporters mad. There was one that was neutral, but they were the sort of things that we Democrats would look at and go, God, how can anyone not be moved by that? But, but he, you know, he has a strange audience. And it's super important to know that an ad that might say, seem persuasive to you might actually backfire and you might right. spend money to move people the other way. Yes. One of the things that you talk about early in the book, which also has sort of a history of media and presidential campaigns and speeches and radio and television and so on is you talk a little bit about the science of persuasion. And one of the things that stuck with me a little bit 
which other people have brought up, is this notion that emotional appeals are effective. I didn't see that necessarily carry forward into some of your thinking about how you would like people to do ads, how you would like to reform things. How does that fit in? No, this is an excellent question because there is a conflict between, you know, Drew Weston, who measured what happens in the brain when you receive political information and that all the movement takes place in the emotional parts of the brain. And then you have these examples where all the emotion is removed in the pursuit of credibility with the piece and with the mailing. I kind of believe both can work. You know, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. I think emotion can work, and I think information by itself can work. In the initial test of this information-only mailing, where we didn't endorse a candidate, we provided clean, clinically stated information that the vote in a way that the voters would believe it. This worked in a three-way test where we did traditional political mail with all the color and emotion and all of that. And we we also tested a kind of a side tactic. And the issues were all the same. The information was all the same. The presentation was different. And the unbiased presentation was what actually moved voters. We've had a growth in skepticism about political ads. And I think that is probably probably diminished the effectiveness of some of the emotional strategies, not eliminated them, but diminished them. There's two important lessons in all of these these tests. One is that credibility seems to be more important than anything in moving voters. And second is if, if that has worked so profoundly in the mail, why in the hell haven't we uh, tried any of this on television, which is a more powerful medium than the mail? If you were asked to consult to a Democratic political media firm and they asked you, how should we change our content, our presentation and our targeting to fit the findings that you're highlighting in this book? Number one. They should create an entity with a neutral name. I cite an experiment where uh, some political scientists took three pieces of mail that had identical content all the way through, except for the disclaimer at the bottom. The disclaimer from an organization with no meaning to the voters, a fictitious organization, the effect size was 15 points higher than the other examples. And and all of that because people people look at the source. If they know something about the source, that completely influences their opinion. If you want to present yourself as providing neutral information, you need a neutral identity. Anything that says Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, all of that taints your effectiveness and the credibility of the information. That's number one. Number two is you have to respect the voter. You don't tell the voter what to believe. You don't tell the voter what to think. You don't tell the voter who to support. You respect their ability to make a judgment about the information you present. You pick out the information that is most helpful to your candidate or party. You display it 
in a neutral, clinically stated way so that no one can read the question and go, oh, I know where they're coming from, right? You, it's just a straight up neutral question. And you say at the bottom is this organization is nonpartisan, nonprofit, and does not endorse any candidate. The best example is, is the one that did these tests, the Center for Voter Information. It was created and named for the purpose of delivering neutral information to voters. Those are the two basic points I would say that, that you want to accomplish. It's a difficult swallow for, for a media consultant that used to, used to play an exorcist music in the background and finding the ugliest picture of their opponent that is available. Or to writing, writing and creating beautiful launch videos that honor their candidate and, and their art of making campaign commercials, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, if you do a lot of those kinds of ads and you're pitching a candidate and you show them this ad where the candidate walks, walks through a garden of tulips and they all part to enable his, his walk. You know, and the halo appears at the top, the candidate, that's what they want. They love that. It strikes me as fairly cheap to test what you, has been tested in the male environment that you're talking about, this idea of a neutral distributor of information that's pretty clean and looks credible and isn't slanted one way or another, to test that with television ads. It doesn't seem like you have to have that many dollars to find out whether that would be better than some generic ad that could also be, you know, repurposed. Has that happened? It depends on how you do the test, because there's two ways to do the test. You can pre-test an ad and you can go to their companies that have big panels of voters who signed up for this stuff. And you show them that the ad and you show them other ads and you look at at the answers that they give to a questionnaire after the ads have shown, particularly which candidate they're supporting. This is cheap. What is expensive is a more accurate reading of the results where you can actually match voters from a voter list to a TV audience. You play the ads to a treatment group. You don't play the ads to a control group. And then you, you contact the treatment and control groups by phone to uh, ask who they're supporting and you see if there's any difference. You measure the movement in that manner. This is expensive because really only about 5% of voters who are called will take the survey. And so you have to make a huge number of calls. One of our problems in measurement is what we're measuring is generally very small. And so if, if you consider a point and a half to be a typical response, and it's probably the typical movement is probably less, you need 20 or 30,000 calls to get clean measurement that, that is really reliable. But it seems like the cheaper way should be able to show if there's as profound a difference in, as you say, in targeting and, and different content of ads, it seems like it ought to be testable pretty quickly the cheaper way, kind of as part of your pitch. If you're going to donors and saying, let's do it this way, can can you make such a study happen quickly and incorporate that into what you're sending around? You could. You could. What, what you measure in that situation is the relative performance of several ads. The question is, do I get a higher score on the information only ad or do I not? 
that's an important piece of information. If what you've got here is as important as you think, I, I hope that people are listening and I hope that people are testing it and making sure you're right and maybe changing expenditure and ad creation in response. Is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? No, the low information voter piece, I think, is decisively proven by the data we already have. A lot of the rest of this needs measurement to better understand it, to polish it, to see if it works at all. You know, can we move people with advertising to uh, change their party affiliation? I don't know. I know we don't have to move them very much for it to be more effective than the larger movement that we might get in one candidate race. Just getting these tests, to me, is a victory because that needs to be part of our culture. We need a little emblem that says, for each organization that's doing political advertising on our side, that says, we're part of the Quality Council. And to be a member of the Quality Council, we have to take 3% of what we spend on ads and spend it on measuring them. What do you think is being spent right now? We need a lot more experiments that seek to measure the effect of the ads in an absolute way. Just about everything you're proposing is testable and therefore ought to be tested and and implemented if it works. Yes, exactly. This, This is what I ask in the book. Hal, great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you, Nathaniel. I appreciate all your work and all the great stuff that you're doing on the Great Battleground. Thank you. That was Hal. He's at halmalchow.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.